Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word, that it is living and active, that it addresses um, your, your, who you are and what you've done, what you're doing, what you've promised to do, and how we should live in light of that. Father, I ask that this time would be of encouragement to my fellow students, to my family, and Lord, may it bring you glory as your word is opened up and discussed today. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, you guys can open up to the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. This is the end of the book of Hebrews, and I don't know about you guys, but I like, I like a good ending, like a movie or a book. Um, more specifically, I, I like food a lot. My family knows that. And I, I love vanilla ice cream with chocolate syrup. It's my favorite dessert. I think it is the best dessert, and I would choose it for every dinner, always, for the rest of my life. Christine, are you listening? Okay. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. I, I'm very strategic in the way I eat vanilla ice cream with chocolate syrup because I don't want my last bite to be just like the melted, soupy ice cream. I want it to be a good representation of everything else I've eaten. I want it to be a balance of vanilla ice cream and chocolate syrup, and I know this is kind of silly, but um, we are at the end of the book of Hebrews, and in the same way, this is, this is the end of the book. This is, this is not just a random um, benediction. This is the hope, the last hope, the last bite, as it were, of the book of Hebrews for us to look at. Um, the author would, would wish that we would see this in light of what all the book of Hebrews has said and live in light of it. Now, I, I wish that, that I did this with my, my hermeneutics. I wish that I got to the end of passages or epistles and didn't skip over it. But I have to be honest with you guys. There's sometimes that I do. I'll get to the end and Paul left his cloak somewhere or they're sending letters to someone else. And to be honest, I, I sometimes skip over the very word of God. Well, today I don't want to be doing that. And, and I would encourage you not to because, like I said in my prayer, the word of God is inspired. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, it speaks to how we should live. It speaks to who our God is. So let us think today on that truth. If you, just because you're here today, just because you've grown up in the church or taken a New Testament Survey 2 class, I don't suppose that you have memorized the book of Hebrews or even know much about it. But the context would speak to the supremacy of Christ. He is the supreme, the better high priest, he brings about a better covenant. He is the better mediator. He is our God. And it is written to people who would be, Jews specifically, who would be tempted to, to turn from their God in the midst of trial or persecution. And so the author urges them to stand firm, to remember the gospel, and not to drift away from it. And it's full of warnings. Leading up to this chapter, this is chapter 13. So in light of everything that's been said throughout the book, in light of Christ being um, our high priest, but also the sacrifice, we come to the benediction, the hope, the final hope of, of, of this book, this epistle. And since this is the last Spurgeon Fest of this year, I thought it rather fitting to do a benediction. So here we are today in the book of Hebrews, starting in ch chapter 13, verse 20. Read along with me. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. I love this passage. Now, my goal today is that you would be encouraged to trust in God the Father, that you may be equipped by God the Spirit for the glory of God the Son. I have, I have three points today, and they kind of rhyme, so I thought that was fitting. The first point is the treasure of the gospel, that you would know the treasure of the gospel, not just intellectually, but in such a way that would, it would change the way you live, that you would submit to the, what pleases God, the pleasure of the Father, and you would know and worship God who, who has all glory, and therefore it is the measure of his glory that we are to worship being him, rather. Now as we start, the text opens up speaking of the God of peace, who, who raised Jesus from the dead. Now how, how does this um, make him the God of peace? In other words, how does it prove that he is the God of peace? What are his credentials? Well, let's go back. He, he creates everything, in all creation. Man sins against him, goes against what he has commanded them, and yet, God promises to send one who will crush, who will defeat sin and death. So, so that's in Genesis, but as we go on throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we can see that, that this God of peace is the God of peace, and he's promising one who will come. Who is this person? Who is this person that will defeat sin and death? In Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, this person is referred to as the Prince of Peace. He's, he's the one that will bring about peace. Now, how does he do that? How, how will he do that when he comes? Isaiah 53 makes it clear that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So we get to the Gospels and read Christ coming, Christ dying on the cross, and it's glorious. It's true. He, he took our place. But friends, I think it's so often that we, we stop there. We, we talk about the crucifixion. We talk about what Christ has done, and it is glorious. It is true. But that is not where it ends. We celebrated Easter a few weeks ago, and, and, and the, the uh, climax of Easter is the resurrection, that he did not stay dead. Because if he stayed dead, we are meant to be pitied. We, we, we are still dead in our sins. The, the gospel doesn't really impact us if we are dead in our sins. It doesn't, doesn't change the way we live if Christ is not raised. Therefore, let us be reminded first that God has proven he is the God of peace. I mean, he's always been the God of peace, but his actions have been consistent with that. He raised Christ from the dead, and therefore those who were once dead in their sins— those who were once alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, can now be in relationship, can now have peace with the God of peace by Jesus Christ. God has proven who he is by what he's done. Now, in the same way, we can ask, how does the great shepherd of the sheep, how does he prove that he is the great shepherd? Sure, he is. The text says he is. But how, wh what does that mean, and how do we know? Well, Christ says you don't have to turn there. In John 10, that the great shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. When the wolves come, he doesn't run away like a, like a false shepherd. He lays down his life. He is concerned with his sheep. 
He knows his sheep, they know him. He leads his sheep, and he gives his sheep eternal life. We could also turn to Ezekiel 34, where we would see that in contrast to the false shepherds of Israel, God will send one who will be the good shepherd, who will rescue his sheep, bring back his sheep, heal his sheep, pray for his sheep, and protect his sheep. Christ has always been the great shepherd of the sheep. By nature of him being raised from the dead, we know that he was slaughtered. He, he was slain for the many. And this is important for us to understand because he has shepherded us. If we are in Christ, he has shepherded us in his death. He has shepherded us in his resurrection. And he will shepherd us. He will lead us forever. He is our God and our shepherd. And he has proven that. I don't know about you guys, but when I grew up, I, when I was five years old, there was two things I feared more than anything else. One was dying and, and forever spending eternity in hell, which is a legitimate fear for a five-year-old. Um, the other, which in my mind was equal, I don't know why it was, was getting chicken pox. Those were like the two. <laughs> oh, it's good to hear Kevin Richter's laugh. Oh man, I missed that. Uh, but those were the two great fears that I had. Chicken pox and going to hell. And so, that sounds awful, being itchy forever. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so, when I grew up, I would always do everything I could. I prayed a prayer when I was five, but I would do everything I could to make sure that, that there's no way, I don't know about chicken pox, but there's no way that I would spend eternity in hell. So I'd read my Bible and ask God, God, like, may, may it be that your wrath would miss me by an inch. And I never really had any assurance. I, you see, I just, I just wanted a savior. I just wanted a way out. I didn't want to spend eternity in hell. When I got to the end of eighth grade, um, I was at a summer camp and realized an essential truth of the gospel, that I just wanted a get-out-of-hell free card. If you've played Monopoly, you know that if you land on the get-out-of-jail or the jail space, you go to jail. I knew that in my life, one day I'm going to die, and I was just in so much fear that I would spend forever in hell, but I did not want a Lord. The text calls Christ our Lord Jesus. This God of peace you brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, he isn't just our Savior. Yes, he is our Savior, but he is our Lord and Savior. Lord and Savior, is, it's like one coin. And if we only want one side, we, we really don't get it at all. If he's not your Savior, obviously he's not your Lord. And if he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. This passage also speaks of the blood of the eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant, we have relationship. We can come to God. I was watching a preview for a movie a few months ago. The movie's called Risen. It was good for its theatrical value, uh, but it, in, the, in the green screen, when it was saying what it was rated for, it said it was rated for biblical violence. I remember thinking, like, biblical violence? Like, is there secular violence and then biblical violence? Like, why are we, where's the dichotomy between the two? Now, I imagine, like, a mom who wants to shelter her kid. She doesn't want her kid to see violence, but, hey, Risen's got biblical violence. It's okay to watch it. So she takes her son... <laughs> And she's mortified. No! It's, it's real violence. I thought it was biblical. <laughs> and I, I jest. I, I think that's funny. But it got me thinking. Is there, is there biblical violence, as it were? Is there something in the Bible that is violent that I would want people to see and understand? Yes. And you know where I'm going with this. It is it is Christ. It is what he's done. It is not the fact that he, he didn't just lose his blood. It wasn't a mistake. 
He laid down his life. He gave his life. And by this blood, we have covenant relationship with him because of what he has done. And friends, what, what I tried to say in my introduction was this, that I love vanilla ice cream with chocolate syrup because it's sort of, when I eat it, I want to make sure my last bite is a represent, representative of everything else I've eaten. Well, in the same manner, this benediction is a representative of what the book of Hebrews has talked about. You don't believe me? Well, hopefully you do. In, in 2.9, if, you, if you, you don't have to turn there, but you would see that Christ tasted death for everyone. In 2.15, because of what Christ has done, fear of death is gone. In light of being in Christ, think of these things. In 4.14, we can draw near to the throne of grace. In 7.25, again, we can draw near to God through Jesus. In 9.11-14, the blood of Christ is better than animals. In 9.22, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In 9.28, he bore the sins of many. In 10.4, animal blood cannot take away sin. The Old Testament um, sacrificial system cannot take away sin. It had to be Christ. In 10.10, see that we are sanctified by Christ's blood once and for all. And in 10.19, in light of these things, we have confidence We have confidence to enter by the blood and the new and living way because we have a great high priest. So let us draw near. The great irony of the gospel is that the shepherd would become the sacrificed sheep. That the the, the high priest who was supposed to be the one sacrificing the sheep actually became the sacrifice. That the God of the universe who was supposed to be worshipped by people, he became man and was slaughtered. (laughs) This is ironic. And if this be true of God, though, think of these things. What have we to fear? We sang the song, Now why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us in all things? Romans 8 makes it clear that he did not, if he did not spare his own Son, will he not give us all the things? He has demonstrated power over our greatest enemy and love over our greatest need. Remember I said this point is the treasure of the gospel. The treasure of what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to repeat that. He has demonstrated power over our greatest enemy, which is death, and love in our greatest need to be drawn into relationship to him by his sacrifice. So I'm going to get real practical here. Freshmen, are you worried about fitting in and people thinking much of you? Or sophomores, are you consumed with Getting that ring by spring and finding that, securing that, I don't know. It's pretty nice when you find it, though. (laughs) Juniors, are you worried you may not be able to pass your classes? Seniors, are you worried about what comes next? Life after college, a job, a spouse, whatever. In all things, whatever you lack security in, turn back to the gospel. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. We would be called children of God. This should be a tidal wave of peace to the small bonfire of anxiety we build in our lives. When we recognize what we have in Christ, there should be nothing in this world that causes us to fear. Think of this moment right now of what you wish you had so you could change something about your life. Okay? then think of what you have in Christ 
Think of the covenant relationship by the blood of Christ that you have. Because he did not stay dead, we are no longer dead in our sins, and we can have relationship with God. I know I'm being redundant, but the gospel is not redundant. It's, it, always, it always is speaking to our lives. We always must go back to it. We always must turn to it. When I was a senior in high school, I remember it was my favorite thing to, to, to take a freshman aside and ask them, what is the gospel and how are we saved? And it was interesting seeing them squirm and, and not really know how to answer. Um, but it, it kind of burdened me. And I knew coming here to Masters, um, that would be different in, in many ways. And, and it is, by and large. But there's still times where I'm talking to my friends, my brothers, sisters in the dorm. And, and the gospel is, is, not, is not Christ. It's not that we would have Christ. It's just... It's just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's just something along those lines. My friends, do we, do we understand the implications of the gospel? If we believe the truths of the gospel, that should impact the way that we live. Finally, because of the gospel, we can have confidence in our piety. We can come to God. We can pray to God. We can worship God. Because Christ, being the high priest, has done what he has, we can, we can come before God with confidence, having our hearts assured in faith. This is, this is the treasure of the gospel, but really this is just taking the treasure, tre tre treasure chest of scripture and just peeking inside. It's, it's just taking a small glimpse, but my hope would be that that small glimpse would be impactful this morning. Next, we've not only seen the treasure of the gospel, the question is what is the pleasure of the Father. What pleases Him? And how can we submit to that? Read in verse 21 with me. May He equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us or in you, in some manuscripts, that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. By implication, if we need to be equipped, if, or some translations would say, if we need to be made perfect or made better, the reality is we are not better. We are, we are not good on our own. We need God in, in his sanctifying work to make us more like Christ. We are spiritually broken. This is true before the fall. When we are saved, we, we have a new heart, a new mind, but still, the Spirit of God still needs to do a work in our hearts. We are needy in our justification and our sanctification. And we, we can't get this wrong. A.W. Pink said, it cannot be said too often that a false theology finds its source in inadequate views of depravity. If we have a wrong understanding uh, of our nature, both before salvation and after salvation, then the gospel and how we are made more like Christ can be misunderstood. We are needy saints. We, we have a, a need for the Spirit of God to do this work in our hearts. And friends, I see a great correlation between those who, who do not value their salvation and those who do not think of themselves as needy saints, as ones who are desperately in need of God to do a work in their hearts to change them and make them more like Christ. And isn't this how we first come to the Lord, recognizing that? I think of the movie Captain Phillips, if you haven't seen it. It's a movie about people that are on a ship, pirates come, not like the Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, I was misunderstood when I saw it. But um, they come, and, and they take over the ship. They're holding the passengers hostage, and they think they have one 
crucial thing to get millions of dollars. They have this one thing that's so important, and it's leverage. They have leverage. They, they have people at their hands that, with guns to their heads, and they know that if, if, if people don't give them money, then, you know, they're, they're going to get rid of those people. So they know that, that they're going to get the money they, they need. And friends, we have no leverage over God, right? Right? And this is why the gospel is sweet. On a Friday morning, when the horizon of the semester is right before you, you are a needy saint. God does not owe you salvation because of who you are or have been. He offers, he gives salvation to those he has chosen, and therein those who are humble in heart. Before we move on, before we even get to, to verse 21's implication, and I'll say this again, I see a great correlation between those who do not value their salvation to those who do not see themselves as needy saints. What is true, we are needy saints, but that is not all we are. We are also passive saints. Because God must do this work to us. He must do a work in our heart. He must equip us with everything good. He must work in us so that we can be pleasing. And I don't know if you know this already, but we've, we've already seen the Trinity at hand. We've seen the God of peace who raised again the, the Son, who will now, the prayer is that he would now work in us to make us more like his Son. And Philippians 1, 6 says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. The Spirit of God will do this work because we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is why, why we are here, as Ephesians 2 would say. And, and the hope is that he would continually to equip us, to perfect us, to make us more pleasing to him, to do his will. His will is our sanctification. His will is that we, like I said many times, would look more like Christ. Well, skipping back again to, to before we were saved, I thought it rather fitting to read a Spurgeon quote since it is Spurgeon Fest. And Spurgeon says this in regards to the work of God, at least in regards to our salvation. He reads, One week night, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. Now, hopefully that's not what you guys are doing right now. Um, the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind. In a moment, I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change completely to God. I ascribe my change completely to God. It's true we are needy saints, but we are also passive in the, in the sense that God must do this work in our lives, both in our justification and our sanctification. Philippians 2, 12-13 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is, for it is God who is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Spirit of God must do this work in our hearts. He must, if we are to be sanctified, to be made more pleasing to God. We're needy, we're passive, we are also active. And today I'm not going to try to, to discuss the dichotomy between God's sovereignty and man's free will, that's, I can't answer that question, honestly. I know that God works in us, and we are to work. And instead of 
stressing over how to figure that out. I think we just need to submit to the Spirit and, and work out our salvation. So we are active saints. We actively must pursue our sanctification. The Spirit of God doesn't just work in us and then we're just awesome people. You know, we, we are called to, to work it out. Here's two bad examples of, of what that looks like. I saw a video a few months back where a father goes into his daughter's room and he sees it's messy. And he goes to his daughter, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says to her, you know, daughter, I asked you to clean your room. Why didn't you clean it? And she says, Dad, I memorized your command. I memorized it. And I can translate it in Greek and Hebrew. And, and in our small groups, we talk about it. And we've been praying about it, Dad, and I just, I feel so good about it. I know so much about what you commanded me to do now. The irony of the story is she hasn't actually obeyed. She, she has the right knowledge. She's got the facts down. But she's not obeying. And here in a place where we can so often be saturated with biblical truth, with knowledge as it were, we, we must not let that knowledge or theology stop there. The gospel, the treasure of the gospel, ought to allow us to see the Spirit of God working in our hearts that we may submit to Him to be pleasing to Christ, pleasing God. Another bad example is this, and this is an example I've seen in my own life. There's times in my life where I, I look back. I look back to maybe what I used to be. I used to, and I would say to myself, and I've heard others say about themselves that, you know, I used to be so spiritual. I used to read my Bible all the time. I used to pray all the time. I used to be so devoted to Christ, but now I have not just lost the discipline. I've lost the desire as well. And, and when I hear that it, and see that in myself, it is something definitely to, to feel sorrow over, that we would, we would go away from, from what we've once committed to. But at the same time, I've heard said and said myself that, you know, I just need to get back to that. I need to go and just read more and pray more, and, and that's the standard that I need to adhere to. I think of the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. In the temple, they're praying. The Pharisee's praying and saying, God, thank you for not making me like this Pharisee. You see, his standard of righteousness was himself, whereas the tax collector, I said Pharisee, it's like the tax collector. Um, the tax collector's praying and recognizes that the standard is God and that he has fallen desperately short of that. So friends, when, when you're asking, how can I please God's will? How can I, how can I be pleasing in his sight? It is not looking back to some previous state. That's saying that that's the standard of righteousness. I just need to adhere to that. The standard of righteousness has always been Christ and always will be. God is righteous and we are not. So what we need to do is, is repent that, yes, we have gone from where we were, but we need to be like Christ. We need to follow hard after Christ and look like him in thought and word and deed. And, and guys, that looks like walking in the same manner as he walked. Walking in the same manner as the one who was pleasing to God when God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And, and I think Ben hit it on the head on Monday, talking about knowing our identity in Christ, putting off sin, being renewed in the spirit of our minds, and putting on righteousness. And yet, so often in my life, I've seen that when I'm trying to fight sin, when I'm trying to get rid of sin in my life, I just focus on putting it off and stopping there. That I just want to get rid of this sin. And I'll fight it. I'll struggle against it. Maybe 
three, four days will go by, and I've defeated the sin, and I'll think, you know, I'm pretty good. I got rid of the sin. I think it's true that the second you feel you have murdered a sin, a few, a few new ones show up at the funeral. I thought that was clever. <laughs> but I see that in my life. The second I feel I've gotten rid of a sin, I, I've conquered a sin, because I've been so consumed with just putting off, I haven't been consumed with pleasing God, with actually doing His will, and, and, and being changed by the Holy Spirit. So I haven't gone to His Word. I haven't sought to put on righteousness. And that, that is our sanctification. That is what it is to be pleasing to God. So what have we said so far? We've discussed the treasure of the gospel. The God of peace who has demonstrated his credentials. How is he the God of peace? How, is, how can we see that he's the God of peace? Well, all throughout scripture, specifically in the resurrection, he's proven, he has demonstrated to us that those who, who were once alienated from God can be at peace with God. We, we, no longer can be, we no longer are dead in our sins because of what Christ has done. And Christ has demonstrated that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. He laid down his life. He didn't lose his blood. He gave his blood. And because of his sacrifice, we can have a relationship with God. We can have covenant relationship with God. Our sins are forgiven. We can enter with confidence to the holy place. This is the gospel. And we get Christ. He, he, he is the one in whom our, our hearts are to be set. And that was, that's, that's in the past. And now in the present, those who are saved, we, we have to recognize that we are needy. We need the Spirit of God to change us, to, to equip us with everything good, to do His will. But at the same time, we've got to recognize that we're passive in the sense that the Spirit of God must do this work in our hearts. We must yield to the Spirit doing His work. But it doesn't just stop there. We're to be active saints. Actively living out the truths of the gospel. Actively responding to the gospel. And seeking to please God in every way. This manifests itself in our sanctification. We've seen the treasure of the gospel, the pleasure of the Father. And now the measure of the glory of Christ, his glory is eternal. When I began studying the scriptures, it was, it was after junior high, so the beginning of high school. And I remember, I, I, knew, I knew this thing was true, this, this doctrine that I'm going to talk about. But I struggled with it. I really did. I, I knew what the Bible said concerning the divinity of Christ, but I, I always wished wrongly that, that the scripture would just make it more clear. That it would say that, that Christ is God, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses are wrong, and there's nothing to be worried about. I say that because I knew if Christ isn't God, if Christ isn't the God of the universe, everything falls apart. I, I knew I can't get this wrong. This, if he's not Christ, and it, it's not like I just go to a, a religion that believes that Christ is man. I lose everything. I, I, lose, I lose the gospel. I'm, I'm still dead in my sins. And yet, I came to this passage, reading it say, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen, and I just thought that settles it. In Isaiah 48, 11, I knew that it said that God, God is saying, I will not share my glory with another. So I just interpreted it as like, all right, Christ is God. Like, I knew that from John 1 and other passages, but it's so clear here. And, and the reality is this text necessarily, you could interpret it two different ways. You could say that the God of peace is the one receiving glory, or Christ. Um, by the way, I, I, 
I do definitely believe in the divinity of Christ. And after studying the scripture through high school and up to now, I've, it's most clear all throughout scripture. Even the book of Hebrews is clear about it. And that's why his sacrifice is sufficient. But whether you take this as saying the God of peace receives glory or Christ, I, I take it as Christ. The bo- they both, both the truths are true. Romans eleven thirty six. Speaking of God says that by him and through him and for him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. While Colossians 1.16, speaking of Christ, says by him all things were created. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Therefore, I can say in both ways, Christ is God and Christ deserves glory as does the Father. If you give glory to the Son, you give glory to the Father and vice versa. Piper says that God, in, in relation to this passage, that God and the Son, the Father and the Son, are not competing for each other's glory. They're, they're working in the same way to receive glory. In relation to the glory of Christ, Piper writes, all that came into being exists for Christ. That is, everything exists to display the greatness of Christ. Nothing. Nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human, from the greatest saints to the most wicked, genocidal, dictator, everything that exists, exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known, including you and the person you have the hardest time liking. Now, I'm getting married in about a month and a week. This is coming up. I met Christine in the Hotchkiss Lounge, and now we're both RAs in the same floor in C-Dub. It's a love story. And, and you see, I could make it my life effort that Christine would bring me glory in all things, that Christine would honor and praise me, even in this sermon right now, that after I walk down, that you all would, would praise me for this. But the reality is, is that God is the only one who deserves glory, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The question I'll have to ask for the rest of my life, as will you, is whose glory are we pointing to? For me, am I pointing Christine to my glory or Christ? Whose will it be? Whose glory are you pointing to? Pay attention to this quote. As you can tell, I like quotes. From uh, R.C. Sproul, it says this. If we seek our glory, we seek our glory at the expense of the glory of God. So music majors, in your recitals, in your rehearsals, and whatever you do, I'm not musically talented at all. Um, If you seek your glory, you seek it at the expense of the glory of God. Or Bible majors. I am a Bible major. In in whatever you do, in in your sermons, in your papers, in your study, if you seek your glory, you seek it at the expense of the glory of God. Or sports players. Whatever team you're on, whatever sport you play, if you seek your glory... In the midst of your performance, you seek it at the expense of the glory of God. (laughs) Even my fellow teachers whom I I love and and I admire, if you seek your glory, you're seeking it at the expense of the glory of God. Are you the God of peace, friends? Have you raised anyone from the dead? Have you become the great shepherd of the sheep? Have you purchased by your blood the people of God? Can you change people from being dead in their sins to alive? Can you make them please God? It's the Trinity alone who deserves glory. All that, that God is and all that he's done is worthy of our praise. 
the Father who ordained our great salvation, the Son who gave his life as the great shepherd, and the Spirit who works to make us pleasing to God. Does your life reflect belief of this? In conclusion, I believe the ratio of vanilla ice cream and chocolate syrup is great. I love this passage, though, because it speaks much, or rather reflects much, of what has been said throughout the book of Hebrews. Who Christ is, what he has done, and who we are in light of him. How we are to live in light of him. Ultimately, for his glory forever. As I said, my goal today is that you would be encouraged to trust in God the Father, that you may be equipped by God the Spirit for the glory of God the Son, that you would know the treasure of the gospel deeply, and it would change the way you live, and you would submit to what pleases the Father, what pleases God. Hebrews 11 makes it clear that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The life of faith the life that would look at Christ as the standard of how we are to live. He is the one who is, who is all pleasing to God. To please God, we must, by faith, consider him. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we do these things for the glory of God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. The Trinity is all deserving of our glory and our worship. Whose glory are you pointing to? Whose glory are you pointing others to? Are you making them look at yourself? Are you making them look at other men? Are you drawing them to Christ? Drawing them to God? You can turn your Bibles as we, as we end to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is an exhortation to put on the new self. In light of our identity with the risen Christ, Colossians 3, Verses 1 through 4, it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. Read 1 through 4. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Our Father, you are the God of peace. You are the God who from eternity past to the present and to, to the future eternally, Lord, you have demonstrated who you are. And we, although we were once far off, can be brought near by the blood of Christ. Lord, he did not stay on the cross. He was raised. Because he was raised, we can have assurance in our salvation. We can have assurance that we too will not perish eternally, but we will be raised one day. Father, I thank you for Christ, that we would be um, brought into covenant relationship because of the love he has demonstrated. That as the shepherd, when the wolf came, he did not run away, but gave his life for his sheep. I thank you for the relationship we have. May we not fear in life, may we not fear condemnation or anything in life, Lord. All things, all things are so small and trivial in place 
next to the gospel. So that we die. Father, may you do a work in my friends and in I to equip us, to change us, to make us more like Christ, to be more pleasing to your will. May all of our lives be centered and focused around the reality that Christ deserves glory because he deserves glory. Our lives should bend and worship towards him. Thank you for this time, and I thank you for your word. May it change our hearts and our minds. Pray these things in your name. Amen.